Hey everyone, wanted to tell you a little bit about this week's episode and how it's perhaps different than the normal episodes I'm putting out. Perhaps you noticed that last week I was a guest on Greg Boyd's Apologies and Explanations and filled in for Greg to do an episode. The wonderful people at Renew and Dan Kent, who's the editor-in-chief at Renew.org, invited me on to really talk about primarily the meaning crisis, to give a little history of the, 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 the history of sort of Western thought, religious thought, philosophical thought, some of the things I'm really passionate about and been sharing quite a bit via my podcast and the YouTube videos I've been doing. So that was the primary reason I came out. Of course, we had some other fun discussion about things like the Book of Enoch and Fallen Angels and Nephilim. That's the sort of stuff that you can always expect in Greg Boyd's podcast. It's great. And what was released was a, I think it was probably a 40-minute episode, maybe 40, 45-minute episode. But what we'd actually done is recorded about two hours worth of material together where Dan had brought up all sorts of other questions. And uh, Dan shared with me the um, kind of the bonus overflow episode that he had put together where we get to explore perhaps some more speculative things, the more speculative side of theology. One of the guys in church history that did this uh, probably most notably was uh, the church father Origen. And Origen had a, of course, his pretty important orthodox work, in fact, helping to establish what orthodoxy would be and and biblical hermeneutics. But Origen was also well known for delving into sort of the world of, of speculative, speculative theology. That is kind of exploring some of the questions that are... Uh, fun. They're <laughs> fun questions to explore. They might not necessarily be things that you wrestle with every day, but are still, I think, perhaps put on the shelf frequently. The sorts of questions that emerge in our minds late at night, or perhaps we're sitting outside on a beautiful spring Minnesota day, like hopefully those of you in Minnesota have been able to do these last couple of days, and you go, well, what about that? So this is an episode that maybe has a few more questions and answers that is a bit speculative. So for example, we talk in this episode, I, Greg, or not Greg, Dan asked, asked me about my thoughts on, on Greg Boyd and uh, open theism. We also talk a little bit about consciousness and what is consciousness. We talk about some of the more new and experimental things that are happening in philosophy and theology about panpsychism and cosmopsychism and what that is all about, plus a whole bunch of other fun things, including what some might call prophetic dreams and my own experiences of having these wild dreams that have given me insights into situations I should have no insight into and future events. Has that ever happened to you before? What's going on there? So I thought sharing some of the stuff that came up in this conversation would be helpful to you guys. So you may want to also, if you haven't yet, you might want to check out the previous episode, the one just prior to this. It might give you some context for some of the highlights of today's conversation. So check that out. I have a question to start first. Oh, you do? Yes, I do. It's an easy one. Is that Greg actually drumming? At the beginning of yes, the podcast. Yes, it is. It, it is. totally is, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, in fact, the first time we drummed, 
the first time we recorded, um, we were literally recording in somebody's garage, and he had one of those electric drums, you know, that you can <laughs> yes, do with the headphones yes, on. Totally. So the the old episodes was an electric drum set, and it was like just crammed in this garage, and we like did the whole recording the the episodes. We recorded the you know twenty episodes at a time, yeah. and there was like a vice grip right next to his head, and there was like all these tools dangling all around us, and so we couldn't like gesture much because yes. it was all cramped. And, That's awesome. But then um, but then after that we said okay we need some new drums so we went to his house we started to record there and he played there and then after crucifixion of the warrior god came out he bought a new drum set with the the you know the advance from the, yeah. the book and so then he's like okay now i, I need to no, test I this really out. and i got it. some new ones so we're actually due for some new drum that's bits awesome now okay too. so quick quick story first time i met greg who uh, actually i mean he wouldn't know me from adam uh, I was doing, I'm a musician too, and I was uh, working with this guy that was um, doing hip-hop music and lived in St. Paul, and uh, I was doing guitar work for him, and you know, he was like, well, can you play some bass? And I was like, yeah, I, I can play some bass too. He's like, oh, let's lay down some bass, bass tracks here, but I, I got to go pick up my bass. I, I lent it to uh, my friend Greg. And I was like, cool. He's like, well, let's just, we'll just go walk over there. Yeah. And, um, you know, so this was like 12 years ago. I'm pretty fresh out of college. And, and Greg, as like a charismatic, somebody that grew up in the charismatic tradition, Greg is like the gateway drug for charismatic people <laughs> into theology, into a wider world of, theo- world of theology, because, you know, we had these, I had these sorts of convictions about, you know, this, um, the work of Jesus that we saw in the Gospels and we saw in the, the book of Acts. And, you know, unless people affirm this sort of framework that we were really in some sort of cosmic struggle, right? Yeah. And that God wasn't punishing people with sickness and all sorts of stuff, we wouldn't listen to him. Yeah. You know, so there was a guy like Greg that would come around and be like, well, here's a theological framework for hmm. why this actually works and why prayer matters. So he was a gateway drug into a wider world of theology for me. So I was kind of a fanboy of him, you know? And uh, anyway, so we go over, you know, all he said was my friend Greg, I lent him this bass and we go over and knock on the door and who opens it up? But Greg Boyd. And I'm like, <laughs> this is the Greg that you lent your bass That's funny. to? That's funny. So, well, yeah. now I wonder, was Greg playing the bass? That I, would be, I have no you idea. You have no idea, yeah. He no probably idea. used it for his band. Yeah. That's probably what it was, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, I am not musically gifted. It's it's funny how many times I hear people who are just really into Greg who come from that charismatic background. Yeah. Because I do not. Yeah. I'm like the least charismatic person. Right. And like I believe that the Holy Spirit is active in the world, but I have no clue what the Holy Spirit is doing, and I've mm. never felt the Holy Spirit. And and but so many people who are from that tradition just totally. really glom onto to Greg. And I kind of came to Greg through um, open theism because mm. that solved a lot of theological problems for me. And um, so yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of paths to Greg Boyd. There so. is, you know, actually the, re- the 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 first point of introduction to me was my parents had been reading. This was probably even all the way back, maybe in high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It could have been early on in college. They had picked up uh, letters letters to a skeptic, letters from a skeptic, yep. and had been reading that and had been sharing it with a family member who was uh, at the very least agnostic, if not atheist, and they were just raving about this book. And then I overheard them talking about this section that seemed like what the author was saying was that, you know, the the future may even be unknown to God. And I was like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. That can't be. And it just, I mean, I was so interested in this guy's work because I'd never heard of that 
before yeah. in, in my life. And yet, uh, yeah, it led, led me down this rabbit yeah. hole of all sorts of reading Greg, Greg's stuff. And, uh, yeah, really, really helpful for people that, that come from my tradition and yeah. stream who are, this is anecdotal, but, and it's improving, I think, uh, who are in large part, very anti, re, um, theology yeah. you know i always used to hear growing up seminaries or cemeteries oh funny yeah you know totally. so that was um that was sort mm. of the tradition mm. that's it's interesting seminaries or cemeteries i've never heard that but definitely came in conflict with um fideism and sort of this pietist kind of faith over reason type right. stuff and for me uh that was probably the big crisis of of my my first crisis of faith was that because you know, I had a friend who died of cancer and everybody just said, well, you just have to have faith because I, I couldn't understand how, you know, God could be good and all that kind of stuff. The, the typical problem of evil stuff. And what I ran into was this idea that you just have to have faith. And, um, and, and you know, <laughs> why not just have faith in Buddhism and or something? Why Christianity? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I... I you know, at the core of my being, I thought there has to be some logical reason to believe. Otherwise, I, I can't. I can't believe. And then someone introduced me to C.S. Lewis, and I'm and like, it oh, all hell over. it's okay to ask these questions. Yes. It's okay to yeah. pursue the intellectual side of God. And, yes. And, uh, and I, you know, and for me, that, like, that invigorated my faith, and that invigorated my life. My whole, it just kind of revolutionized my whole life. And and you know, I was a 1.3 GPA in high school, and then I ended up being almost an a perfect A student in college because it mattered. And so for me, it wasn't a cemetery; it was like this resuscitation chamber. It was, it really was. So, yeah, I don't know what those people are thinking, but well, I kind of do. I mean, uh -oh. because. In the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, there is this emphasis on you can do the stuff, mm -hmm. right? There's this legendary story of, of, of John Wimber, right? The founder of Vineyard Churches. And when Wimber had become a follower of Jesus, he showed up one week. Um, and I might be, you know, I might not be telling the story perfectly, but you guys can look it up. <laughs> um, he showed up to like a local church after becoming a newly follower of Jesus, was just like devouring the Bible, had come out of this sort of like drugs and rock and roll culture. And uh, he shows up at the church, listens to the sermon, goes up, I think, to an usher or something after the service. He's like, that was great. When do we start doing the stuff? And he's like, what do you mean doing the stuff? Well, the stuff I'm reading Jesus do and the stuff I'm reading in Acts. And, and the guy tells him, well, we don't necessarily do that stuff here. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I think in many ways, uh, the there was this really positive emphasis in Pentecostal and charismatic culture about you can do the stuff, you don't need to be educated. Right. And now as we look at the expansion of the global church around the world, it's yeah. bigger outside of the Western world now than it is in the Western world. And most of the people that are pastoring churches don't have Amen. seminary degrees. Yeah. And they, you know, Amen. much to the dismay of, uh, not to be polemic, but much to the dismay of people like John MacArthur, right? They're, right. they're Pentecostal and charismatic. And yep. they, they live in a world... They live in a world which is uh, filled with demonic darkness that yeah. they feel like they really actually have the real need of the equipping of the Holy Spirit to be able to advance the good news in the Absolutely. world. So, Well, that's funny that you say that because I feel like I'm pulled in two directions. Because on one hand, the, the um, permission and the kind of uh, capability to understand God 
intelligently sort of liberated my life. But at the same time, um, the, the dependency and the kind of the devotion that people give to the intelligence of God can absolutely suffocate a life. You don't need to, and this is one of my favorite things in, in the Bible is this kind of character based knowledge of God where, um, Jesus is like, if you want to know if I'm who I say I am, this is from John seven, um, keep the commands. Don't go to seminary. Don't figure out, you know, these logical arguments. Don't, you know, learn modal logic. You just just keep the commands and your life will be changed so much that you'll realize that my teaching does not come from, you know, men. It comes from someplace else. And and so I'm, I I feel both. I feel like, exactly. you know, praise God for the, the intellectual capability that we have to understand and that this actually does make sense. And it's not only does it make sense, but it's, um, co- it's coherent and it's the the most appealing options when you look at all of the options that are out there. It seems to make the most sense. It seems to have the most trustworthiness to it. But at the same time, you don't want to devote yourself to the trustworthiness to, of it. You want to devote yourself to the being that is trustworthy, mm. not to the mm-hmm. intellectual side. So. Yeah, and, and I've being deep enough in charismatic circles and spending most of my early ministry years in, you know, charismania. I mean, we're not just talking <laughs> about your local AG church, but... Um, you know, all sorts of wild things. Mm-hmm. Um, my gateway then in, into this world of like academic theology and philosophy was was seeing was seeing a lot of the devastation that took place as people neglected. You know, Miroslav Volf talks about the path of ascent, right? Ascent is the, this path into the knowledge of God. Well, in, in my tradition, the only pathway into knowledge of God was through like mystical experience, yeah. through this sort of super rational experience. It was, and, and to the extent where um, we really thought that the path of reason was actually for some reason, a path that led us away from God. But what I saw was a lot of um, this sort of bifurcated world that people would live in because they didn't know how their reason was even necessary for them to read the Bible, Hmm. right? And I'm I'm not talking even about like seminary-level reading. I'm talking about you use your faculties of reason to make sense of the sentences you are reading. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, then you start getting exposed to this wider world of historic theology and you, you see people like Aquinas that were like, you know, we have this knowledge of God that also is accessible through general revelation. And you're like, oh yeah, that's what Romans one was all about. And so like for me, the experiences that I had with God were like this gateway into going, well, I want to like consume everything I can. And I want to learn what perhaps, um, others haven't learned and have led them into this world really of darkness, you know, um, almost like, I, I don't know if you saw, if you're a Netflix guy or not, but there's this documentary on flat earthers hmm. on Netflix. And I watched this documentary and it was heartbreaking because the way these flat earthers encountered the world and the way they came to their decisions about what they were going to believe is reality was so painfully similar hmm. to so much of what I'd seen in evangelical Christianity and in particular like charismatic circles, very conspiratorial, very, oh, yeah. you know, so anyways, um, 
we just, you know, we welcome, I welcome all of the paths to knowledge of God. Are you an open theist? I would, um, I, so I used to say yes a lot more quickly. Oh. I am, if I were to get speculative, see, here's the thing. I think like existentially everybody is, you know, everybody lives as if the future. And so, you know, to a certain degree, that for me is more valuable than the, well, is, here's what I would say. I do think there are, I've always, I felt more comfortable saying that I have an open view of the future, right? That like ontologically the future consists of possibilities, even if that's only like 1% Hmm. of the future. And more relevant is like we live as if that's the case when we make our decisions and stuff like that. So I have to, I have to find like a cohesive belief that supports that. So, um, yeah, but to me, I guess the, still the biggest problem actually with it is comes down to like God's, uh, God's supreme intelligence to me is like, well, if, you know, Greg always used the, um, you know, the chess master yep. analogy. And I guess at a certain point I, I struggled to see the difference between like simple foreknowledge and like God being so intelligent. You know, I know my kids and my wife to a right. certain degree where though they're free, I am, I can have a strong degree of certainty of what they would do. Now, if I were to able, able to properly analyze all the factors, I would probably be able to predict with a pretty high level. Yeah what they were going to do. So, you know, that's where I go, well, you know, but, uh, yeah, but then, you know, God of the possible was a massive book for me hmm. in college. Oh, that's you know, cool. um, Satan and the problem of evil. I mean, yeah. I think everybody should read that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm in that book, by the way. Are you? Yeah. I'm in footnote. I can't, sure, I can't remember. Yeah, I got a footnote. Yeah. I, I was very proud of that. It was so random too. Cause like, um, he, that was back when he was here at the college still Yeah, <clears throat> and he was working on it and I read a draft of it and I said, Hey, this section on natural evil and how mm. even the good in nature, there's something a little off about it. I told him that Robert Frost has this poem called design that, uh, is so brilliant because it's a 10 line stanza. And so there's 10 syllables and 10 lines. That's mm. how, that's the typical thing. Mm-hmm. And it just talks about like a spider's web and how it devours this fly. And then at the last line, there's only nine syllables. So it's just a little off mm. from what's supposed to, it's just this brilliant poem. Wow. You know? And, uh, yeah, yeah. So he ended up putting that in there, and he gave me credit for it. And I was very, as a college student, I was oh, that's just like, crazy. Oh my yeah, right. I thought I was, I thought I was going to be somebody at yeah, that point. Yeah. So. Starts with a footnote. The yeah. next thing you're giving talks that's, that's to everybody right. around the world. <laughs> I feel like we're not, um, we're not doing a very, or we haven't done a very good job of showing people and uh, kind of translating the teachings of Scripture into. Uh, daily practices. Yes, yes. The into, orthopraxy. Into, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, yeah, the orthopraxy, exactly. Um, like, because, like, why Why are so many Christians devoted to politics right now? Uh, because they, their hope in changing the world comes through politics. Yes. But 
that's not our hope. Our hope mm. is supposed to be in the church and mm. in Christ. But the church has been so powerless where it's like, you know, the churches don't deal with the homelessness problem. The churches don't deal with the abortion problem. They lobby for certain political actions, but they don't, you know, they should be the place where these problems are solved, not the places where politics are lobbied about these problems. And and so we, we've lost touch. We've, we've lost the ability to show kind of how uh, the teachings and being a disciple of Jesus should you know, translate into the real world, I, I think, uh, which means that we probably don't understand it ourselves. Definitely. And, and, and so um, I think that there's a, an understanding gap there that needs to be filled. And then, and then if we do understand it, then we need to be able to sell it better. And there, there's probably reasons why we're not selling it, but um, th- I think those are the directions that we have to look. Yeah. But. When you talk about politics too, I think we should also identify that in this demographic, 10 to 34, like I grew up in the era, this was really the first time that evangelicalism became synonymous with one political party yeah. too you know, the rise of the religious right. And I think you can be a Christian, be a Republican, you could be a Christian, be a Democrat, you can be a mm-hmm. Christian, be a Libertarian. But at any moment you say that denomination in the political religion yeah. is the denomination of following Jesus, you've missed it, yeah. right? I mean, Jesus had a Pharisee, or not Pharisee, Jesus had a tax collector and a zealot in his closest inner circle. You couldn't get further apart politically than those two. But, you know, I think for a lot of young people there, they've grown up in um, a culture, which has said, boy, you know, I want to be, I want to be careful about how I word this, but um, we've grown up in a culture that says we're about life. We're about life. We're about life. Unless it's the life of brown skinned people on the other side of the world that we're, very quick to bomb and not care. That's right. And that, that the world's a complex place. So I'm not, you know, that it's difficult. But for a, at least a moment, I was talking with somebody about this. this I don't want to get too far tangent, tangentially off here. But, you know, I, you talk about, and, and Greg has... Uh, as like Greg and we were talking earlier just before this about a guy like Preston Sprinkle have made these cases for a Christian nonviolence. And what I was talking with Preston about, I had him on my podcast a, a month ago or so is like, all right, that's a really tough pill for Americans to swallow for, to, to jump from where we've been into accepting this, this complete nonviolent way. My position has been, can we at least get people to the just war table? Hmm. Because if you even understand just war tradition and you look at our um, history uh, and our attitude towards violence and war around the world, we're not even abiding in the just war tradition. Hmm. So to me, it's like, well, can we just get Christians to the table and then we could have the just war people and the, the nonviolent pacifist tradition have a dialogue about how this works. But we're so far removed from that. And I think that has really been a damaging part of our witness to the world around us where it's like, I don't know if you guys really take Jesus seriously. I think what I love most about that Enoch story is um, the fact that the these angels saw how beautiful women are yeah. and they gave up their spiritual kind of position to so that they could experience this sex with mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. And it's like you think of how hard it is to to wrestle with the sexual problems that men wrestle with. Right. And it's like 
dude, even the angels struggle with it. So, you know, you can have a little mercy on yourself. You know, Paul even has this weird, uh, in first Corinthians, this injunction about head coverings. And, you know, like he says, well, you know, women should keep their heads covered on account of the angels. That's right. And you go, what? Yeah. What is that? You know, there's a lot. I'm not saying that's the way it has to be, has to be read or maybe I'm not saying definitively that was Paul's authorial intentions Mm -hmm. of that text, but it makes you go. Makes there's you, something you, there's something going something yeah. going on there well yeah because I was going to ask you about consciousness and the reason yeah. why I was going to ask you that is because you had replied to uh, renew yeah. about the discussion between Greg Boyd and Thomas yes. J Ord yeah and man I didn't I, when when Ord was talking about the consciousness in every little thing yeah. I mean I had like been exposed to that in yeah. my philosophy program but i didn't really spend too much time dwelling in yeah. it um i do have this theory um I, I can i can be really quick with it i yeah. I, I naturalism is dying it's think, on, naturalism really? is dying it's on its way out the meaning crisis um boy i could unpack this for quite some time but i'm gonna try to be succinct nietzsche saw it that the you know nietzsche has this famous parable of the madman and what's going to happen when the madman who comes into town who yells the death of god and people aren't ready to hear that god has died yet what's going to happen when they're actually aware of that and the death of god is is coming it's coming to and i don't mean god literally died but this notion that there is no god um there's nothing behind it it's coming to an end because the meaning crisis is putting it pushing us to a tipping a tipping point with nihilism it's a direct consequence our nihilism is a direct logical consequence of the answers to these big six questions hmm. you have these answers this way you can't help but live in the world and go there's no point right so that's going to come to an end because people can't live that way I think the alternative, the big thing that's coming, is actually a form of panpsychism called cosmopsychism. Hmm. So, you know, panpsychism is this belief that everything material in some way has individual consciousness or participates in some way in a universal consciousness. Um, and people have started to pursue this sort of question for a few reasons. There's the fine-tuning problem, the right. fine-tuning of the universe problem. Um, there's a guy by the name of Philip Goff who's probably maybe one of the leading thinkers in cosmopsychism. I listen, I'm not an expert. I listen to a few of his lectures. And he, uh, he's got an article where he talks about um, the physicist Lee Smolin estimated that taking into account, this is a quote from his article, all the fine-tuning examples considered, the chance of life existing in the universe is 1 in 10 to the 229th power, from which he concludes, this is quoting Lee Smolin, the physicist, in my opinion, a probability that this is, that this, Tiny, a probability this tiny is not something we can let go unexplained. Luck will certainly not do here. We need some rational explanation of how something this unlikely turned out to be the case. So people are going, well, maybe there's a multiverse. So what do we do with the fine-tuning problem? We just have a bunch of other universes which make this much more of a statistical possibility. Others are going, maybe there is mind behind the matter. And I think cosmopsychism is the most is going to be the most appealing one because Cosmopsychism is this view. Panpsychism can be this view that individual things have their own individual consciousness, right? And so consciousness is somehow a property of individual entities. Cosmopsychism is that these individual entities are participating in a universal consciousness. So it's like micro versus macro. And I think uh, my prediction, people can listen back to this in 50 years and tell me if I'm wrong. I'd say in 
25 to 50 years, naturalism will be dead and will be replaced with some form of panpsychism. Really? Yeah. It's the only way people are going to be able to find meaning is by, by again, saying there has to be a mind behind it all. That's right. right? So, yeah. um, but why not just, why not just God? Exactly. Well, yeah. But now we're in the ballpark. Once we start having that con- that, that, that conversation about um, consciousness mm-hmm. and the con- conversation about whether or not there's a intentionality, whether the universe has a teleology to it, now we're getting in the ballpark of going, now we just have to discuss what that ultimate reality is like. And that's a much, I look forward to that conversation because... Um, it's like a conversation you might have with a, a, a Muslim, right? Who you both share that there is this view of ultimate reality, that it's singular, singular source of it, that there's, uh, it's the ground of being. But now you're talking with them about what this ultimate reality is like. And that's a fun conversation. I look forward to that because at least, you know, you can sit down with a Muslim and they have a story that provides them with a sense of meaning in the world. And in fact, in Muslim nations, especially even war-torn nations, suicide rates are very, very low. Hmm. And I think in large part that's it's because they have a narrative framework that even gives them, even if we might disagree with it, it gives them a sense of how their suffering and their experience of suffering is not inherently meaningless. Right. So once we start having that conversation, it'll be a, a blast. Yeah. Well, we should talk more about yes. that because um, I love the the study of consciousness and um, uh, especially, and I like the idea of, of what would you call it? Cosmo, cosmo, cosmo psychism. Cosmo psychism. Okay. Uh, versus just panpsychism, uh, which is uh panpsychism is there's, there's consciousness in everything. Yeah. And yeah, the cosmo psychism is actually in some ways, and I've asked Philip Goff about this just via Twitter and I don't know what his response was. I'd have to look back at my, my tweets, my timeline. I'm curious as to how his position differs from someone like David Bentley Hart, who says that consciousness, our experience of consciousness, is a finite participation in the infinite act of divine consciousness, which is the constitution of reality. It's it's a diminished but nonetheless real experience of God's knowledge of himself that Mm -hmm. we participate in. And so now we're just trying to talk about if what what is this mind like? Are we all saying that there's an ultimate reality? The source of consciousness, our individual experience of consciousness, is just a participation in that larger being. Mm-hmm. See, you, you, you are encouraged by that oh, conversation. Gosh, yes. See, I'm discouraged. Oh, by really? It. Why? Because I think that I sense that you think that that conversation gets us closer to theism. We might and not. I think it gets us closer <laughs> to pantheism. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's that's true. That I'm trying to be an optimist about it. To me, it's better. It'll be a step. Oh, you're, you're right. I can't say this for certain. I'm, I'm more optimistic because in many ways, you're right. It could be more dangerous too, because then people at least have a narrative framework that provides them with a sense of meaning and sees themselves as connected to some larger yeah. intentionality for the universe. It's going somewhere. So maybe they find it elsewhere. Maybe they find their sense of meaning. That's a good point. I think about have that. you have you ever? I'm totally uh, depressed. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> have you ever um, read the, like uh, the Unity of Consciousness arguments? Um, William Hasker. No. Uh, I think he. I think Hasker kind of built the argument off of something that Kant did, but it's to me it's uh, what it shows is that self consciousness is not reducible to matter. Yeah. And um, and. I, I haven't seen an argument against it that has been compelling, and and I, I in other, which is another way to say that I'm convinced by the argument. Um, but what he says is that when you 
but this would work. This would be the case with panpsychism too, because even mm. if each element has a little bit of consciousness, when that all comes together into my experience of self consciousness, it can't be reducible to panpsychism. It can't be reducible to all these little elements of of consciousness. Because what uh, uh, Hasker argues is that when you have any type of experience, like if you're even we're sitting right here in the seminary um, in this kind of room with a bunch of chairs and tables and there's nobody else here and it's beautiful and there's wood everywhere and we, we're just kind of looking and we see uh, the hardwood ceiling and we see the big windows looking out over the lake and um, and we hear a humming noise. It's probably the HVAC that's going. Yeah, yeah. And uh, things are moving. There's people walking out there and the chairs are not very comfortable. And so we feel that on our buttocks. All of that stuff is coming in through a, a couple billion neurons are just like firing all of this information into our brain. Um, and yet we don't experience that as a couple billion disparate points of data. We experience it as this unified scene. And how do you account for that unified, that unified scene? And he says that you can't. You can't account for the unification of all of that because um, if you say... If if you say that, uh, well, it just it, it's a simultaneous firing of neurons. Well, where do we where do we process the simulta- uh, simultaneity? Um, because we are we have perpetual evidence of processing simultaneity. Where is that taking place? And if you say, well, that takes place in a different part of the brain. Um, first of all, we don't know where, but that's just going to be another collection of neurons. And so. And so then you could say, well, it's not a collection of neurons. And this is what a lot of people thought even 20, 30 years ago. There's a grandmother cell. It's called, it's called the grandmother cell theory, which hmm. is there's one cell where it all comes together. In, in. Uh, but the problem with that, of course, is that we know what a cell is. And we know all the right. parts of a cell. And there's no parts of the cell that can process all of that information um, it's for us to experience in this unified way. And so then the other solution is that, well, that, that experience of unity is an illusion. But the problem with that is, is that, okay, well, where is the illusion taking place? Where are we being duped? Where's oh, the, in the brain? Yeah, like, where yeah, in the yeah, brain yeah. are we being duped yeah. about the unity of all of this? Yeah. And so it ends up coming back to kind of like the uh, Kagido uh, ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. I experience the unity of consciousness, therefore I can't be part of, I can't be, that, that, that unity of consciousness cannot be part of the thing that creates the scene it's got to be oh, yeah. um, and oh, so yeah, and he brilliant. and he gives a he give that that's my attempt to kind of make his argument in common language but he actually goes through like a, a couple logical arguments that are are really persuasive as well i just quick story too because i i'm dave bentley hart talks about this as well um i also have experiences and this is where my my charismatic roots are showing. I have these experiences of what we've called the prophetic, even in dreams that I, I just go, no one can ever talk me out of hmm. um, where I know somehow my brain isn't just reducible to matter. I'm, I'm somehow God is giving me access or to, I'm tapping into something like a quick, just a quick story. I've had these crazy experiences over the course of my life where these dreams about future events and they, they, they come 
they come to pass. And, you know, um, you haven't had any dreams about me, have you? No, no. I would like to know that if you have. No, no, no. And maybe there's just a glitch in the matrix, right? You know, and that's another way people have explored the problem of consciousness, right? It was like, we're just living in a simulation like Elon Musk thinks. But so like a quick, quick story here. This is one of the wild, wilder occurrences. I had a friend and maybe I'll even say their names. If you're like, if you don't believe me, you could look them up. A friend named Jared Logan. He's a record producer down in Kansas City. This was years ago, 10 years ago, and I used to get these dreams for Jared. We were friends, not super close friends, but it seemed like God just gave me his number. At least, again, what I attribute to God gave me his number. I had a dream one night where uh, I was with Jared, and there was this other guy, a lead singer, and you could probably even look him up, and if you wanted to ask him about this experience, he would confirm it. Um, a guy named Aswan North used to be lead singer of a band called Paper Tongues, and they were hanging out together someplace, and they were meeting with this really rich guy, trying to telling him about starting like a record label and trying to get business from him. And I was sitting there with them in the meeting. And then I went over to the, to them with this, this gymnasium. And in this gymnasium, they were all watching. They were watching like a church plant that was meeting a gymnasium. I asked, what are you guys doing? I'm like, well, we're, we're going to talk to one of the like worship leaders here about doing a record deal or whatever. So I called Jared up the next day and I go, Hey Jared, I know sometimes I've gotten these dreams for you or whatever. And uh, maybe it's the pizza I had the night before. And that's how I always approach it. Like, <laughs> pizza. I, I, could have pizza. Been, I, I could be wrong and do this in like humility. And I know this might be outside some people's grids, but whatever. Um, so I'm like, here's the dream I had. And he was silent. And I'm like, yeah, again, man, I, I, I could just be that. And he's like, no. Aswan's sitting with me in my basement right now. We've been, and we haven't told anybody about this. For the last few months, we've been meeting with a millionaire to fund a, a record label idea. And... Just last night, I don't know if he said last night or two nights ago, we were at a church plant in a gymnasium. Wow. Um, scoping out a worship leader to, to get our record label. And uh, he's kind of wigging out for a second because we've had a few of these, but this was really, really precise. And Aswan, this guy Aswan, who I've never met before, I mean, I didn't even know they were friends. This guy Aswan's in the background is like, Who are you talking to? And he had, he had a little, you know, his language was a little more coarse. You know, he's a believer, but uh, he was like, who the F is this guy? Come on, you're making this up. And he hops on the phone. He's like, I don't know who you are, man, but that's some crazy S right right, <laughs> right there. And, uh, you know, you can't take anecdotal experiences like that and build this entire case. But for me, I could never be convinced. And that's just one of many experiences mm. that I'm just reducible to matter and nothing more. I know somehow, some way I was able to participate in like diminished, but nonetheless real experience of God's knowledge of himself. Mm and creation. I don't know how it works. I think what I like about, well, first of all, let me, I don't want to leave yet. Let's stay in Genesis for a second. Uh, I think what I like about that is just the way I read the the scripture is I'm always trying to find, um, because like for a long time, my temptation was trying to get the Bible to cohere with science. You know, because part of that was because I was just in love with science. I thought science was, um, I mean, it's 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 a very verifiable um, kind of venture. So you, there's a lot of uh, cognitive comfort that comes from the scientific process, and there's a lot of social comfort because the society is sort of gaga about science, and and they've place their hope in science and for good reason because science has produced so many great advances and things for us. So I think for a long time I've 
I wanted the Bible to cohere with science. I personally stopped trying to do that. Um, what I've tried to do as I read the scriptures, I've tried to look at what does the scripture teach about life, about living as a person, not about where life came from, not about how life got here, but what does it mean to live in this world, however the world got here? And then how is that different from what the world says life is about? And and so when I read the uh, the Genesis story, your counter-narrative is fantastic. The, the other counter-narrative that I see in there is that every problem that we experience in the world is the result of broken relationships. Mm. And you see these these fundamental relationships break in the the story, in the creation story. You see our relationship between us and God break, our relationship between us and nature break, where yeah. now we have to toil. Yes. Um, we Our relationship with life breaks, where now we're going to experience death. Our relationship with, with the opposite gender breaks. Um, our relationship with our own self breaks, where we feel shame. And all of these kind of fundamental relationships break. The relationship between God and not God breaks where now suddenly somebody else holds the keys to death and somebody else has dominion yes, over this yeah. creation and um and and when you look at any single problem in the universe it can be explained by a break in one of those relationships and um and i think that that's a powerful kind of narrative that uh transcends some of the science questions um and to me that's more important and so uh, I, I like that that whole kind of uh, venture of looking at the scriptures through that lens and and asking it the, the types of questions that it was meant to be asked, yes. which is another reason why you know you know I, uh, when I've taught like Bible stuff, you always get the smart alecky kids and say you know well how, how I love those kids. yeah 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 <laughs> they'll ask questions about like um, you know if if God didn't make the sun and stars yet how did where did the light come from exactly. and stuff like that you know right. and it's like. And and they think that which is a theological statement, by the way. It is, but they the kids are thinking that uh, the smart Alex yeah. are thinking that they've outsmarted the Bible, but the fact of the matter is that I think that the the text is written that way because we're supposed to be asking that question, yes. and so I think that the the this, the the kid who asked the question is just doing what we're all supposed to do with the That's text. That's part of the inspiration. That's part of the inspiration. And, Amen. And, yeah. But if you take a. a, a, a I think it's meant to show that this should not be taken literally in this way. Uh, it's meant to send a different message. Well, literally is such a... It is. That's a loaded word because... It is a loaded word. Because yeah, when we say literally... Word. I know, I know. I, I'm not I'm not correcting you. I'm just bringing up the point that that's... That, that sort of language is... You can correct me, but... <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a modernist it is. way of, of yeah. seeing the world. And what we should really be saying is, is it real? Is this really real? And that is really real. It is really real. What God? Just take even that example of why? How how can you have day and night? You know, you have these days, but you don't have a sun and the moon. Hmm. Well, that's not the, what that. Oh gosh, the it's clear once you dive into the world that they live in. That question isn't on their mind. No. What are they? What is possibly the author of Genesis countering? He's countering this belief that was prevalent in the ancient world that the sun and moon were themselves deities and gods, that the heavenly bodies somehow governed your life. And here comes the inspired author of Genesis coming around and going, no, pump the brakes. Listen, yep. the sun and moon weren't even made to the fourth day. God doesn't need them. That's right. Right? Like these things don't govern your life. And you go, oh, yeah. So let's talk, talking about literal versus non-literal. I go, is it true? Right. And that's true. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that extra bonus conversation, some of the highlights from my talk with Dan Kent. We're going to have Dan Kent on very soon, actually, to explore a bit of theological psychology, which is an area of expertise for Dan. He's got a new book coming out that I think would be really intriguing for some of you guys to hear about. So that'll be coming out shortly. I also want to invite you to become a patron on Patreon. It's one of the ways that you can support this podcast and the YouTube channel and some of the work I'm doing to help people have these sorts of conversations to perhaps get exposed to ideas about God, theology, and philosophy that they haven't been exposed to, or to to help them maybe take a more careful, nuanced look at some of the questions they've been wrestling with. And so you supporting that via Patreon would be of tremendous benefit to the continuation of the work that I'm doing here and to help take it to the next level in the months to come. So Yes, thank you to the Patreon supporters, those patrons out there that are already supporting. You can check that out in the link in the description of this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk again.